A quick content warning, this episode does contain brief references to sexual assault alongside other forms of gruesome bodily harm. This is Medieval Death Trip for Sunday, August 21st, 2022. Episode 94, Helmbrecht v. Sheriff, Eve of Justice. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Well, we've come to the final act of 13th century peasant epic Meyer Helmbrecht. Uh, We know that this poem was written by Werner de Gartenera, because, as we'll hear today, he names himself at the end of the poem. As with so many medieval authors, that's really the only concrete information we have about him, his byline. Everything else is speculation. Based on the geographical details contained in the poem, it seems likely that Werner grew up or lived in the Lower Inn River region, uh, in order to be as familiar with it as he is. The content of the poem also suggests possibilities for his vocation, When he's complaining that he never received as good a reception as young Helmbrecht got when he returned home, he rather offhandedly mentions that he has wandered the land and visited many places. He also compares himself as a dancer to young Helmbrecht. He seems familiar with both courtly and village customs. Based on this, some scholars think he was by profession a wandering minstrel. And in today's reading, we'll hear him specifically including a detail about the minstrels at a wedding getting paid, which might be one of those winking-at-the-audience bits uh, during, one imagines, a live performance of this poem at some festivity, uh, similar to those jokes Shakespeare likes to make about theater-going. Now, Werner as a minstrel doesn't really fit the appellation der Gartenera, or the gardener, But it is possible that this was a family name, and that's why it doesn't align with his vocation. And one scholar has proposed an etymology that connects it to a rare verb meaning wandering rather than gardening, Uh, but this idea seems not to be widely accepted. Another theory connects him to a recorded person in 13th century documents, a Werner who was a pater or father gardener in the Augustinian monastery of Ranshofen a position that would have involved supervising the monastery's agricultural holdings and thus visiting and interacting with peasant farmers. A clerical background certainly helps support the writing of text, uh, though others have objected that there's too much anti-clerical sentiment in the poem for it to come from a monk. To which I just have to say, have these scholars read other monastic poets? Uh, It seems to me that some of the sharpest barbs are sometimes fired from within the abbey walls. But all that said, the bottom line is that we really just don't have enough information one way or another to make an identification. But while Werner doesn't give us much to go on about himself, he does paint quite a rich picture of peasant life and peasant personalities in mid-13th century eastern Bavaria or western Austria, uh, somewhere in those borderlands. Back at the turn of the previous century, Friedrich Kynes and a few other scholars matched a number of place names in the poem to a real area, Uh, and even found a 13th century record of a Helmbrecht farm on the Austrian border about six kilometers east of the town of Berghausen, which lies on the Salzach River about 50 kilometers north of Salzburg. Peasants and their habits and attitudes were largely ignored by medieval chroniclers and historians, and they seldom feature in courtly literature except as stock figures. Uh, This was a theme in our true crime miniseries, Uh, about how few sources actually present ordinary life. Also, literacy levels being what they were, for the most part, they were unable to write about themselves. So, some of the best information we get about peasants comes from scenes of daily rural life in manuscript illuminations, local records like the coroner's rolls, and literary sources. And even there, often the literary sources present peasants as objects of scorn or derision. This poem, Meyer Helmbrecht, has been held up as one of the few works of medieval literature, uh, at least before the 14th century, that displays a favorable attitude towards peasants as a class. There are more later medieval works that do this. Uh, Our translator, Claire Hayden Bell, cites Piers Plowman from about a century later as one major example. 
but strong, positive peasant affinities remain rather uncommon in the High Middle Ages. Bell suggests that this may indicate that Werner himself came from a peasant family background, so there were perhaps some vectors by which peasants could, in a sense, write about themselves, albeit through individuals who left peasant life to join a monastery or perhaps serve at court. So, in this series so far, we've talked a bit about peasants, we've talked about robber knights, there's a third major faction in the equation of this narrative that we haven't really looked at yet, and that's law enforcement. Spoiler alert, I guess, uh, but the long arm of the law is going to show up in these last 500 lines of the poem. In the 13th century Holy Roman Empire, in addition to the great interregnum causing all sorts of political turmoil and shakeups to the status quo among the nobility, we're also in the middle of an important multi-century period of transformation in the law. Namely, German law is transitioning from an older, traditional, local, even personal, and fundamentally oral system of law to a statutory, royally or imperially instantiated and written body of law. In a sense, the law is moving away from being part of an inherited culture and towards being a received and imposed structure. A key source for witnessing this transition is the Saxonspiegel, or Saxon Mirror, a legal text originally composed by Eike von Repko in the 1120s, though the translator of the current English version, Maria de Bosi, points out that it's better thought of as a textual tradition rather than a singular text, since Eike's book, uh, being a practical handbook, was much modified and adapted and glossed and indeed translated by later scribes to suit the needs and new legal understandings of different regions and later times. And since no copy of Ica's original version has survived, a reader today is always picking one of the specific flavors of later Saxonspiegel to read and reference. Anyway, these texts show two frameworks of law coexisting. One is based on the old Talionic principles of eye-for-an-eye compensation, or rather, money for whatever type of damage, and trials by combat and other forms of authorized feud, essentially, and the other is laws as we typically think of them, established by the authority of the state and enforced by the courts of the state and their officers, with fixed penalties and punishments. In the prologues that Eike von Repko wrote for his book, and over a hundred years later in Meyer Helmbrecht, we can still feel this slightly more primal, religious, even magical association with law and justice. Eike writes, quote, God is law itself. Therefore, justice is dear to him. Consequently, all those to whom God has given the task of judging shall strive to reach judgments in such a manner that God in his wrath and judgment may treat them mercifully. End quote. And he presents the law as originating with God and shared to man through both the prophets and great leaders like Constantine and Charlemagne. Ironically, even though Ica's book uh, which isn't a law code, it's just meant to be a comprehensive description of the existing law, a kind of Saxon law for dummies type of handbook. Uh, Ica doesn't think he's enshrining the law in writing, he's just trying to provide a helpful reference for judges in the empire to use. Um, even though this book centers God as the font of the law, it is itself one of the first major steps towards reconceptualizing the law as a fundamentally secular and governmental institution. But again, we're only moving towards that. In the Saxon Spiegel, we still see not only the acceptance of resolving disputes through the use of ordeal, but also a lot of swearing oaths on holy relics. Though, of course, we still swear oaths on sacred objects, even in our modern court systems, at least the American system, though we don't actually use those oaths as a mechanism for determining a judgment, uh, which is how they do function in Saxon law. You can actually swear an oath of innocence to clear yourself of a charge, with the idea being that a false oath would bring the divine wrath down upon you, and who would dare to do that? Uh, of course, it also usually helps to have some powerful mortal supporters behind you as well at the trial. But these are quite formalized rituals, with more than a touch of religious or magical awe around them. Meyer Helmbrecht presents us with a much folksier bit of superstition. 
This is belief in the so-called Schergenbahn, in which criminals would be powerless when approached by officers of the law. Now, I've done some searching on this term, which I first encountered in the work of George Nordmeyer, who I mentioned last episode, and among English language sources at least, I've only found one other that actually mentions it. Uh, This is an article from 1936 called Peasant Customs and Superstitions in 13th Century Germany by A. Basto, who simply quotes Meyer Helmbrecht as the evidence for the existence of this, quote, widely spread belief in the uncanny powers of the sheriff, end quote. So I'm not actually sure just how well historically established this superstition is. Based on the English language sources, it looks like it could well originate with Meyer Helmbrecht. So for now, I suggest taking the claim that this was a common German superstition with a grain of salt tossed over your shoulder. Perhaps the German language scholarship is chock full of other examples of texts mentioning this belief. Um, Any German specialists out there, let me know. I'd be very curious to find out if this is better supported elsewhere. Straddling the traditional functions of a pagan priest chieftain and the mandates of a modern state functionary, we have the people's avenging angel in this story, the judge. In Middle High German, the judge is Din Ritter, or modern German Richter. This is related to the word Recht, which is generally used as the word for law, but also has a much broader sense than English law. Uh, It also means justice, right and righteousness, uprightness, rectitude. De Bosey, in the introduction to her Saxon-Spiegel translation, traces out some of the etymological connections around this root. And you know we love tracing etymological connections. She writes, quote, At its very foundation, the original adjective, coming from the Germanic retta, is found in all the cognate languages meaning straight or unbent. It describes the correct, straightforward way of doing things in terms of the customs or rules people lived by. In other words, customs were experienced as actions and behavior, not as a set of abstract rules. End quote. And this helps us conceptualize the status of law in a society where such core pillars of the culture are primarily transmitted orally and through lived tradition as opposed to preserved authoritative texts. While we do have traditions of law speakers in early Germanic societies who were responsible for memorizing and reciting a body of law, fundamentally, the law is not a set of commandments that have been handed down which all must obey. It is, rather, simply the way our people have been doing things, or more accurately, the right way to do things according to the culture's established norms of fairness and appropriateness. Today, we have the idea of an unwritten law or unwritten rule, which is typically subordinate to whatever is written law or policy. The unwritten part defines it as informal and not a real requirement. It's just an expectation of how you should act. But for much early medieval law, outside of treaties and charters, practically all law was unwritten law. Even the medieval law books that were written down, like the Saxonspiegel, were, for the most part, as I mentioned, merely descriptions of the real unwritten law. They weren't speech acts that created and established authoritative law, like statutes and law codes do now, uh, or even as in other traditions like the Ten Commandments or Hammurabi's Code or the Roman laws codified under Justinian. Though you do see, naturally, some influence of Roman law on the Germanic and Celtic peoples conquered by the Roman Empire, for a long time this orally transmitted traditional tribal law persisted well into the High Middle Ages. But, of course, just as with epic poetry and sacred texts, once something's written down, there is a tendency for the written version to gradually supersede the oral and to become more and more authoritative. But here, in the mid-1200s, when Meyer Helmbrecht is being written, we're still looking at an attitude toward law that is fundamentally customary, that is, guided by norms and conventions of how things have been done and what people feel is the right, straight, and proper way to do them. A legal offense or felony is an unrecht, literally something bent or crooked. The job of the richter, the judge, is, etymologically speaking, to straighten out the situation. They set things right. 
At a conceptual level, that's a bit different from a judge who sits in judgment, weighing evidence and evaluating claims. Judge comes to English via French from the Latin judex, which consists of two elements, jus and dex. Jus means law, and dex comes from dicere, to say. So a judex is one who pronounces the law. They're also the one who ultimately will hand down a verdict, verdictum, a true saying. Now, like recht, use also can mean upright, right, and indeed straight, uh, but the straightening metaphor is a bit weaker in its etymological tradition. It comes from a Proto-Indo-European root connected to life and vitality and time. Uh, the word juvenile traces back to that same root. Uh, so there's a sense there that the use, uh, the law, emerges from right living or virtue or maybe even just authority and power, if only that of the weight of time and history. Recht, which is cognate with English right, goes back to a different Indo-European root, one specifically meaning to straighten. The Latin cognate is rectus, which gives us rector and rectitude, uh, and also rex, king, one who rules or directs the people down a straight path. All of that brings us back to the Richter of Meyer Helmbrecht, who may appear to be acting, in modern terms, more in an executive capacity than a judicial one. And that's natural. Indeed, in Saxon law, and much early English law as well, the default judge was whoever the local lord was. Now, in this poem, the precise nature of the Richter is a bit vague. He's clearly not the actual graph or count that heads up this gang of thieves. In fact, outside of Helmbrecht's speeches about attacking those who have offended this nobleman's honor, he's curiously absent from the ensuing legal proceedings, both on the bench and in the dock. So the judge could be another high-ranking noble, or he could be a locally elected official, which was another type of judgeship. Though if so, he's overreaching his jurisdiction, since such lower court judges, uh, according to ICA at least, weren't supposed to try capital offenses like stealing livestock. Our poet also gives us a second figure, der Schurge, as in the word Schergenbahn, uh, which Claire Hayden Bell translates as the sheriff. The image of a hanging judge and a sheriff and his posse riding out to confront some bandits gives us this vivid impression of the Wild West. But the medieval German reality is a bit less clear. For one thing, uh, much like with Wild West fiction, Werner is almost certainly departing from actual legal procedures to enhance the drama of his story. Certainly what we're going to see happen here in terms of the arrest is not quite what's described as the right and normal process in the Sachsenspiegel. Though, to be fair, as far as the punishments handed out go, it's not wildly off the mark either. The other thing is that, just as the Richter is not exactly the same thing as a modern judge, the Scherge is not exactly a sheriff. The dictionaries show that in modern usage, Scherge means henchman or minion, with a strong negative association. It's also translated thug or bruiser or gangster. As near as I can tell, it doesn't appear in the Sachsenspiegel, that is, it's not in the glossary of German legal terms that Debose includes with her translation, but clearly in Middle High German it didn't have the criminal connotations it does now. I don't think I'd go so far as to use sheriff myself, but something like bailiff is maybe closer. He's an officer of the court who is helping the judge to straighten things out. Or maybe the relationship is even closer. Arnold H. Price has argued that the Richter and the Scherge were the same person, who is simply referred to by different titles as he performs judicial or executive functions. I'm not sure I buy that entirely, but there is some ambiguous overlap in the narrative, where sometimes the Scherge seems to be in charge, and sometimes the Richter seems to be in charge. It's definitely the kind of thing where a modern screenwriter would combine those two characters into one. So maybe Price is correct that even here, they're meant to be one person operating under two different job descriptions. Okay, before we see this posse of lawmen in action in our text, we should take a second to do a quick look back at a couple of moments from the beginning of the story that just might be important again at the end. 
because medieval poets love their bookends and symmetries. First, let's quickly review the four dreams from part one that old Helmbrecht presents to his son as ominous omens, and which young Helmbrecht chooses to interpret in the most positive possible ways, uh, or just ignores. He's in high spirits. He proclaims he's bold enough to bite through iron. Uh, His father is a real downer, though. He first says he dreamed about his son holding two brightly shining candles, and that the last time he had a dream about someone holding a pair of candles, that person ended up going blind. Uh, The candles represent eyes, if you hadn't worked that out. His second dream is of his son missing a leg and having some kind of artificial or crippled arm. His son interprets this, bafflingly, as a sign of good luck. The third dream is of his son having his wings clipped, And then there's the fourth dream, in which he sees young Helmbrecht standing high up in a tree with a raven and a crow picking at his hair. George Nordmeyer argues that the presence of these two birds of ill omen in the dream make young Helmbrecht's disregarding it a more serious mistake, maybe even an offense to the powers of fate. The birds indicate that unlike the previous three dreams, this fourth which already stands apart by breaking the rule of threes, is marked as genuinely prophetic through the appearance of the birds of omen. They are a sign that, quote, the world of evil spirits and of demons is lurking in the background. In neglecting even this warning, young Helmbrecht chooses to disregard more than just his father's words and opinions. The sphere of purely personal advice and admonition is transcended, Now the invisible spirit world has come into play, and we begin to have the strong presentiment that things will not turn out well with our hero. As Helmbrecht chooses to disregard his father's fourth dream, the comedy of the country bumpkin takes on the characteristics of a tragedy. End quote. And that brings us back to the question of genre and character sympathy that I raised last episode. I suspect this final installment will offer even more potential challenges to where you may have landed on that question after last time. Oh, and there were two things I wanted to revisit from the beginning, so in addition to the four dreams, let's also remember the opening image of the poem, an embroidered bit of headwear on top of a head of golden curls. So, we pick up now where we last left off. Young Helmbrecht, alias Schlingdasgoy, has summoned his sister Gotelint to give her in marriage to his fellow robber, Lammerslint. Let's now hear the conclusion of Werner de Gartenera's Meyer Helmbrecht, lines 1463 to 1934, as translated by Claire Hayden Bell. Now hear of violence, grim and wild. Many a widow and her child in their possessions met with harm, were filled with grief and sharp alarm when the hero Lammerslint and his betrothed young Gotland were both to mount the bridal chair. What was drunk and eaten there was gathered in from all the land, for as the day drew near to hand, the comrades did not idle stay. The youths drove in on hoof their prey, and wagons with their stolen freight they drove in early, drove in late to Lammerslint's parental house. When famed King Arthur in carouse espoused one Guinevere by name, his celebration was quite tame compared with that of Lammerslint. These fared on something more than wind. When everything had been prepared, forth Helmbrecht's messenger now fared. In quickest haste he sped along and brought the sister to the throng. Now, when the news reached Lammerslint of the approach of Gotelint, he went at once to meet her. Hear how the youth did greet her. Oh, welcome, Lady Gotelint. Reward you God, Sir Lammerslint. Loving glances in exchange, thick between the two did range. With each these glances did occur. She looked at him, he looked at her. With well-framed words and proudly said, Lammerslint his bolt now sped towards the fair young Gotelint, and she rewarded Lammerslint with words that were as sweet and warm as her maiden lips could form. Now we must give young Gotelind as wife to youthful Lammerslint, 
and we must give young Lemerslint as man in turn to Gotland. A gray-haired man now did arise, who in the use of words was wise, well-versed he was in marrying. He stood both parties in a ring, then first he spoke to Lammerslint. And will you take this Gotalint to be your wife? If so, say I. Gladly, the youth did reply. And when he asked the same once more, he answered, Gladly, as before. And then he asked a third time still, And do you this of your free will? He answered, By my soul and life, I gladly take her as my wife. The man then spoke to Gotalint. And do you, too, take Lammerslint, willingly your man to be? I do, sir, if God grants him me. Again he asked the same of her. Again she said, I'm willing, sir. And then upon his third demand, I'm willing, sir, here is my hand. They gave away thus Gotalint to be the wife of Lammerslint, and thus they gave young Lammerslint to be the man of Gotalint. And now they sang, the questions put, and Lammerslint trod on her foot. Now for the banquet all is set, and this much we must not forget, we must determine and decide who serves the bridegroom and the bride. Schlingdasgoy was marshal gay, he bulged the horse's hides with hay. Schluchtenvitter poured the wine, Hollensack, the next in line, seated the guests, both strange and known, as steward bright his talent shone. And he, unsteady fickle swain, Rutelschrein was chamberlain. Kufras, Kitchener, served the meat. He gave them all that they could eat, and whether roast or boiled instead. Mausten Kelch passed round the bread. The banquet passed without alarm. Wolfsgalm and Wolfsdarm and Wolfsrussel, at their wish, emptied many a well-filled dish, drained many a brimming goblet, too, ere the wedding feast was through. Before the lads, food disappeared with a rapidity quite weird, as though there'd come a sudden gust that carried it away like dust. Each banqueter consumed in haste all of the foods the steward placed before him, everything he saw. And did the dogs thereafter gnaw meat from the bones when they were through? No, this a dog could hardly do. For as the wise have often said, a man gulps down his meat and bread more greedily than e'er before, when death is standing at his door. And so they now ate greedily. It was their last festivity, last time they sat in merriment and ate their food to their content. Then spoke the young bride Gotalint, O oh, woe, beloved Lammerslint, my skin begins to creep with fear. I fear that strangers must be near, who on our punishment are bent. O oh, father, mother, I repent I left my home where you two are, and went away from you so far. I fear that there will come to me from Lammerslint's gift sacks three, dishonor and the greatest harm. I cannot quiet my alarm, how happy I at home would be. My spirits weigh so heavily. My father's poverty I'd bear far lever than the load of care which weighs upon my heart today. How often have I heard them say that those but little will obtain who think of nothing but quick gain and would too much at once acquire. That greediness to hell's hot fire will hurl one with its deadly sin, the yawning pit down deep within. Too late my penitence may be. Alas, that I so hastily have followed Brother Helmbrecht here. In rue I'll pay for it, I fear. The bride thus quickly reasoned out that she had rather eaten kraut at home as the only dish than Lammerslint's ill-gotten fish. Now, after they had dined so well, and lingered sitting for a spell, and when the minstrel's song and play had received its meat of pay from the bridegroom and the bride, suddenly they all descried the justice coming with four men. How speedily the valiant ten quailed at the officers of right. Into the stove one dived in flight, while others neath the benches crept, and each one jostled, sprang, and leapt, lads who from four had never flown, by the sheriff's man alone were now dragged out by head of hair. This is the truth that I declare. A thief, however bold he be, and though he's slain in one day three, a man of law he cannot face. A sheriff brings him to disgrace. And thus, all ten were quickly bound the selfsame hour that they were found with the very strongest bands by the sheriff's sturdy hands. Gotalent, who lost her bridal gown, 
later by a hedge thrown down, was found half-conscious, half-undressed. She tried to cover each bare breast with her hands from stranger's sight. Half-dead she was from shock and fright. Had she had worse to undergo? Let others tell of that who know. God is a wonder-worker true. The tale reveals the fact to you. For though a thief may slay a band, an officer he can't withstand. When far away one comes in sight, there is a fading of his light. His ruddy color turns to yellow. However bold and quick a fellow, a sheriff, lame, could catch him now. His bravery and his cunning, how upon the instant these are past, when God will have revenge at last. Now, hear the ending of the song. Hear how the thieves now crept along with their burdens to the court, and there were promptly strung up short. It brought small joy to Gotalent when she saw her lammerslint, two cowhides bound upon his neck, tied to him at the sheriff's beck. His burden was the least of all. The reason it was made thus small was honor to a bridegroom shown. The others under more did groan. The brother of the youthful bride was made to bear a third rough hide before the beetle, luckless boy. Twas Helmbrecht, alias Schlingdaskoy. Each with his load was forced to trudge. These goods were given to the judge. They had no advocate at court, and may God cut his lifespan short who would extend the span of theirs. These are my sentiments and prayers. I know a judge of such a mind that if a wolf of wildest kind that tore men's cattle for its prey, if it but gave him ample pay, for such a bribe he'd set it free, however venal this might be. Nine men were strung up in the air. The sheriff only one did spare. It was his tenth he had that right. Schlingdas Goy Helmbrecht was this white. What fate decrees is bound to be. God seldom spares a man when he does evil deeds he should not do. In Helmbrecht, this we see come true. To avenge the father, I surmise, the sheriff pierced out Helmbrecht's eyes. Nor was the punishment yet through, for they avenged the mother, too, by lopping off a hand and foot. Because he once rude greetings put to both his parents, now must he endure such dire contumely. To his father thus had spoke Helmbrecht, Vot hept ihr domor burmisekt, and he called his mother slut, you know. These sins now make him undergo such torment with his every breath that he had rather far met death than linger on thus basely maimed and drag a life forever shamed. Now Helmbrecht, blind and crippled thief, from Gotalent must take his leave at a forking of the way with deeper rue than I can say. To lead him home, the blind thief had as guide a staff and little lad. With those at home he hoped to stay. The father drove his son away. He did not help him in his plight. Hear what he told the wretched wait. Dieu vous salue, blind sir, thus short he spoke. When once I served at court, I learned exactly what to say to greet a guest in proper way. Min live a blindling, run along, for now you have, unless I'm wrong, what blind youths need, is that not true? Besides, at court they prize you, too. This greeting's what you'll get from me, for thus I greet blind beggars, see? What boots this wagging of the tongue? God knows, sir stranger, blind and young, my house you must at once vacate. And if, perchance, you hesitate, I'll have my servant give you blows, the like of which, as heaven knows, were never rained on blind man's head. It would be naught but wasted bread that I should lose on you tonight, so get you quickly from my sight. Oh, no, sir, do but let me stay beneath your roof till break of day. Wait, I will tell my name to you. For God's sake, recognize me, do. He answered, Speak. It's very late, no time for you to vacillate. Seek other hosts, and understand you'll get no bounty from my hand. With deepest pain, as well as shame, he told his father then his name. Sir, it is I. I am your child. And did they blind the youth so wild who bore the name of Schlingdasgoy? 
whom sheriff's threat did not annoy, nor judge, nor executioner, no matter what their numbers were? Hi, how much iron did you eat when seated on your stallion fleet, which cost me more than one good cow? If you go blindly creeping now, this causes me no wrath or pain. I grieve for my lost cloth and grain, so dear has grown for me my bread. And though you lay from hunger dead, I would not with a crumb give aid. Let not your going be delayed. Come this direction nevermore, nor cast your shadow on my door. Again the blind youth spoke and said, Since your paternal love is dead, and you no further interest take, you ought still, for the dear Lord's sake, to strive the devil to repress. Then let me, in my great distress, within your house's shelter creep. What from the sick you would not keep but give for sake of charity, for love of God, give that to me. The country people are my foe. Alas, you're hostile too, I know. I cannot any further live if you no bit of mercy give. Derisively, the father spake, although his heart was like to break. The lad was, after all, his own, was of his flesh and blood and bone. Crisscross throughout the world you'd race. Your horse ne'er went at ambling pace. It trotted round and galloped by, and many a heart was forced to sigh. Such frightfulness was shown by you that many peasants, women too, were stripped of everything they had. How now with those three dreams, my lad, have they by any chance come true? And more still lies in store for you to make you suffer worse than woe. Before the fourth dream that we know comes true, move on as bad before. Servant, close and bolt the door. Tonight I wish my peace and sleep. A total stranger I would keep more willingly until I'm dead than give you half a loaf of bread. With all the youth had ever done, he now reproached his eyeless son. Repulsed by loathing, he must scoff. You, blind man's servant, take him off, despised and hated of the sun. He struck the guide. And take that one. Your master I would give the same, but for the fact that I'd feel shame to strike a man of sight bereft. I've decency sufficient left that I can still hold back the blow, but I might change my mind, you know. Betake yourself, you faithless boar, in greatest haste forth from my door. Your suffering is naught to me. The mother, not so hard as he, passed out as to a child a crust. Off went the blind lad through the dust. Where'er he went, or field or grass, each peasant who observed him pass cried out to him and to his boy, Ha! Helmbrecht, thief! I wish you joy! Had you, like me, kept to your plough, you'd not be led round blinded now! And thus he suffered one year through, until he died from hanging too. I'll tell you how that came at last. A peasant saw him going past, as he was seeking out a nest within the woods where he could rest. The man was cutting wood that day for fire, as is a peasant's way. Twas of a morning Helmbrecht now had taken his best calving cow, as fine a beast as one could find. And now the peasant saw him blind. He called his neighbors round about and asked if they would help him out. And truth I will, said one with lust. I'll shred him into bits of dust like those one sees in sunlight fly if I'm not stopped by passers-by. Me and my wife he once roped in and stripped us to the very skin, took every garment we had on. So now he is my proper pawn. The third one then spoke up with Vim. And were there even three of him, with my sole hand I'd kill all three. That unclean, thieving devil, he once split apart my cellar door and pillaged all I had in store. A fourth, who'd been splitting wood for fire, shook like a leaf with his desire. I'll wring his chicken's neck for spite. None can deny I have the right. He stuck my child in a sack while it lay sleeping on its back, wrapped a bed round the little one. Twas night when this foul deed was done. When it awoke and wailed in woe, he shook it out upon the snow. Ere morn, it surely would have died had I not heard it as it cried. In faith, a fifth one said in wrath, I'm glad he's fallen in our path. 
My heart will find a great delight today in feasting on his sight. The villain outraged my poor girl, and were he thrice as blind, the churl, I'd hang him to the nearest limb, and I myself escaped from him but barely, naked forced to flee. Though bigger than a house were he, I'd have revenge on him this day, since he has come to creep away within this wood so deep and wide. Let's after him, they all then cried, and turned, at twinkling of an eye, toward Helmbrecht, who had passed on by. As now they took revenge, they said, while raining blows upon his head, now save your hood as best you can. And what before the sheriff's man had left untouched was this time stripped and to a hundred tatters ripped. It was a gruesome thing. They rained such hail of blows that there remained no penny-wide strip of all the hood. Ring larks, the gay pole parrots brood, and hawks and doves, the birds had flown that on the handsome hood were sown. They now lay scattered on the ground. Here a lock of hair was found, and there a bit of hood. Forsooth, if I have ne'er yet told the truth, it must by all be understood. I tell it now about the hood, and what fine bits the thing was torn. You never saw scalp so forlorn upon a head, so bald and bare. His handsome, flaxen, curly hair, of all its dignity bereft, bestrewed the earth, and there was left. But all this punishment was light, for next they bade the luckless wait to quickly make his peace with God, and one of them a little clod of earth made haste to break and fetch. This to the most unworthy wretch they gave, with charge to use it well against the burning fires of hell. They hanged him to a nearby tree. And thus the father's dream, you see, found fulfillment without fail. And here must end our little tale. Let headstrong children everywhere, who still are in their parents' care, take a warning from my story. If they covet Helmbrecht's glory, I tell them truly, ere too late, that they will suffer Helmbrecht's fate. Upon the streets and on the roads, men could not safely drive their loads. Their wagons now in peace may fare, since Helmbrecht dangles in the air. And now look up, and round you too, and let the simple counsel you. Take counsel also from the wise. Does Helmbrecht have, as I surmise, young followers who live as he? If so, they'll little Helmbrecht's be. Never in peace they'll let you fare, till they too dangle in the air. For him who reads to you this tale, pray that God's mercy may not fail. And for the poet, pray the same. Werner the gardener is his name. So, a tale of ambition, brutality, and vengeance turns out to be the medieval version of an after-school special. And might as well do another little etymology lesson for non-North American listeners, as well as probably most Americans under the age of 35 or so. Uh, after-school specials. These were a real thing. They were generally one-off narrative television programs that featured some sort of cautionary tale with a heavy-handed lesson at the end. They aired occasionally on broadcast TV in the mid-afternoon in the children's programming block alongside the usual cartoons and lighter sitcoms. A closely related item is the Very Special episode, which is where you have a heavy-handed and often tonally dissonant serious lesson included in an episode of one of those sitcoms. After-school specials seem to have been mainly a phenomenon of the 70s and early 80s, the very special episodes were more in the 80s to early 90s, and today, when over-the-air broadcast children's programming is largely a thing of the past, or at least it seems irrelevant to most children now, uh, both of these references have become dated cultural artifacts, uh, so there's a little bit of 20th century television history for you. Anyway, that was all to say that we end with a moral to the story. The moral does not show much sympathy with young Helmbrecht. It basically says everything's better now that he's dead, and that hanging is the way to deal with other young people like him. But has the narrative really prepared us for that thesis? 
One could certainly say that in broad strokes it has. As Werner tells us, the father's dreams foretold this ending. We should have been expecting it all along. And throughout, we've been told just how greedy and violent and even sadistic young Helmbrecht has been, especially towards the peasants. By the end of last episode, I would guess most of us probably did see young Helmbrecht as a monster, more or less. And I suspect that if the structure of the narrative was Helmbrecht ignores his father, gleefully becomes a bandit, and terrorizes his former friends and neighbors, ends up cursing his own parents and kind of corrupting his kid sister, and then gets arrested and summarily executed, if that's the story, then I think even most of us who in real life reject the idea of bloodthirsty vengeance or capital punishment generally, uh, you know, as an end for someone, even a young man who boasted about torturing people, I think even we would find it a fitting ending to this probably fictional, or at least mostly fictional, tale. But that's if he's basically caught red-handed with the gang and swiftly dispatched by a justice system that is perhaps no less brutal than the people they're prosecuting, but are at least more justified in their use of violence. But Werner doesn't give us that quick and easy, Disney villain falling off a cliff kind of comeuppance. He makes us watch Helmbrecht suffer. If you're like me, you first hear the line that of all the bandits, Helmbrecht's life was spared, and you think, oh, that's good for Helmbrecht. It's not good for Helmbrecht. Maybe you hope that this will be the moment of epiphany and humility and contrition that will rehabilitate him. But we don't get that either. This is not a saint's life. Helmbrecht spared becomes, no doubt, that proverbial figure who envies the dead. And even if he is a bit rehabilitated by his punishment, he is at least humbled. Clearly, in the eyes of his community, the scales of justice have not been balanced. The matter has not been sufficiently straightened out by the judge. And so, a group of his victims take it upon themselves to lynch him. And that's after what his own father does to him. We'll come back to that. It's real hard not to think that we're supposed to feel at least a little bit sorry for Helmbrecht here, that he becomes an object of sympathy, that he is himself a victim at the end of this story. But are we supposed to sympathize? The moral of the story in the closing lines kind of suggests that we're supposed to have been listening to everything that happens to condemned Helmbrecht and go, yeah, serves you right, you sociopathic delinquent. At least, that would be the reasonable conclusion if you take the moral seriously. But we did start this poem in a comic, satirical mode. Maybe that moral lesson, you know, hang all the juvenile delinquents, is tongue-in-cheek. We've talked about how people have recognized Meyer Helmbrecht for its uncommonly positive portrayal of peasant values and peasant lives, but maybe in the final equation, and in the spirit of the best satires, there are no heroes in this story. Maybe we're not supposed to feel particularly good about what anyone is doing. As I mentioned at the end of last episode, I think there are really strong parallels here with A Clockwork Orange, and I'll mainly be talking about the Kubrick film adaptation rather than Anthony Burgess's novel, since I'm more familiar with the film and have not read the novel in its entirety, uh, and I know there are significant differences, uh, especially thematically. But both stories open with a young person who is, out of what seems like a mixture of boredom and arrogance, drawn to violence. Violence fueled by alcohol, a detail noted by Helmbrecht when he talks about his comrade's passion for wine, uh, whereas Alex in A Clockwork Orange prefers the effects of Milk Plus. And, incidentally, both youths are marked out from other people, uh, ordinary people, by their use of a foreign vocabulary. The trendy greetings used by Helmbrecht and the Russian-infused NADSAT slang of Alex and his droogs. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Karova milk bar, trying to make up our Razudoks what to do with the evening. The Karova milk bar sold Milk Plus, Milk Plus Velocet, or Synthamesk or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. 
city and muscles. One thing I could never stand was to see a filthy, dirty old drunkie howling away at the filthy songs of his fathers and going blurp, blurp in between, as it might be a filthy old orchestra in his stinking, rotten guts. I could never stand to see anyone like that, whatever his age might be, but more especially when he was real old like this one was. Can you spare some cutter, me brothers? <laughs> Go on, do me in your bastard cowards. We don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Oh? And what's so stinking about it? It's a stinky world because there's no law and order anymore. It's a stinky world because it lets the young get onto the old like you don't. Oh, it's no order for an old man any longer. Youth is key in both stories. In the part of the story we heard today, what Bell usually translates as the youths is die Knaben, which is cognate with Old English knafen, male child boy, which becomes the modern knave, with a silent initial K, uh, where we see a similar transition from a neutral term to one associated with rascals and ne'er-do-wells, just as we have with Schurge in German. But a point is that Werner, especially in the ending part of the story, emphasizes that this band of robbers is made up of young people, uh, maybe teenagers, you know, early 20s at the oldest. Alex and his droogs in A Clockwork Orange revel in their youth and direct their violence in one instance at other gangs, but mostly at the old, the disabled, the defenseless. And it's that punching down element that really comes back to haunt Alex. Just like Helmbrecht, the rehabilitated Alex is forced by the narrative structure to re-encounter all of his old victims, and almost all of them repay him with the same kind of violence that he inflicted on them. God and all the blessed saints in heaven preserve us. I never forget a face, because I never forget any face. Leave me alone, brother. I've never seen you before. This is the poisonous young swine that near joined me in. Him and his friends, they beat me and kicked me and punched me. Stop him, stop him. They laughed at me, blood in me moans. This murderous guy. Then there was like a sea of dirty, smelly old men trying to get at your humble narrator with their feeble rookers and horny old claws. It was old age having a go at youth. And I daren't do a single solitary thing, oh my brothers. It being better to be hit at like that than want to sick and feel that horrible pain. Just like with Helmbrecht, even Alex's parents tell him he has no home with them anymore. The Clockwork Orange also goes into a place of ambiguous sympathies. Alex is also a monster who does truly terrible things, and yet the last act of the movie makes him so pathetic and his attackers so grotesque that he's positioned as a victim. Unlike Helmbrecht, Alex keeps his life, and indeed ends the film, apparently restored to his old sociopathic self after his experimental behavioral treatment is reversed, which is a very very dark comic as opposed to tragic ending for a satire. The rogue escapes to live another day, like McHeath being pardoned from his hanging at the end of the beggar's opera. This is also an ending that leaves no one looking virtuous. Alex is still a monster. The law, the government, has perpetrated this dehumanizing medical experiment. And the people Alex attacked and abused are shown to be, in their revenge, capable of similar brutality when Alex himself has been rendered helpless. Though, we should just note that the woman who the droogs rape is killed in that attack, so she does not have the chance to react to a pacified Alex. Also, we should acknowledge the references to rape in the last part of the poem, Meyer Helmbrecht. There is a rather oblique suggestion that the sheriff's men may have sexually assaulted Gotland when they captured her, and one of the peasants directly accuses Helmbrecht of having, quote, outraged his girl. Werner's Middle High German is a bit more direct. The word there is notzuget, 
or modern not zuktiken, which means to ravish, to rape. Anyway, I don't have anything particularly insightful to add about how sexual assault is presented in this text, but I didn't want to pass it by in silence either. Maybe the only notable thing is that it is one of the only crimes Helmbrecht is accused of that he himself never boasts about regarding either himself or his comrades. And that does bring us to another point that undermines the simple reading that Werner just wants us to hate young Helmbrecht along with everyone else when he comes back home blinded and maimed and despised by all. It seems to me a deliberate choice that we barely see Helmbrecht doing any of the terrible things ascribed to him, unlike Alex, who we do have to watch assaulting people. We get the quick summary of his career robbing people during his year in the night service from the start of last episode, which is as close as we get, really, to a direct representation of his crimes. But all the real detail just comes from Helmbrecht's speeches about himself and the gang and the peasants' accusations here at the end. So Helmbrecht's actual brutality remains mostly off-screen, so to speak, slightly abstracted. But the violence done to him is rendered in a much more immediate, on-screen kind of detail. Which, I think, is Werner putting his thumb on the scale a bit to slightly mitigate our visceral response to Helmbrecht's violence and to heighten it for the peasants' revenge violence, so that it's harder to judge them against each other. But again, maybe I'm reading with too much of a modern mentality. Maybe we really are supposed to cheer as Helmbrecht gets his karmic retribution each step of the way. It's a similar paradox as we saw with the two hangings in episode 90. Is an execution a street fair where you get to jeer a villain down to hell? Or is it a pious opportunity to empathetically experience transformative suffering, akin to contemplating the crucifixion? We have evidence of both types of experiences as far as executions go, and it may well be that the ending of Meyer Helmbrecht would play differently to different audiences. And sometimes the gap of reaction is surprising, even with much less distance of time than the centuries separating us and the Middle Ages. In 1952, George Nordmeyer writes, quote, Modern readers are particularly moved by the tragic role the story assigns to the old Meyer, who has to turn his blind and crippled son away. We are appalled by the necessity which imposes this gesture on the old man, and the fact that it is a gesture makes the event awful to us. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't read that scene between father and son and feel really sorry for the father. Yes, sure, Werner tells us that the father's heart was breaking as he spoke derisively to his son, but this gesture of repudiating his son goes beyond you know, barring the door to him. It's sneeringly mean. He's throwing so much back in his son's face, it's hard not to hear it as almost gloating. This is more than just a ritual turning of his back on his outcast and disgraced son. Even Alex's parents in A Clockwork Orange are rather apologetic about having rented his room out to a lodger when they send him on his way. But maybe this is like young Helmbrecht's catalog of all the terrible things that might happen to Lammerslint at the end of last episode. Uh, by the way, all those punishments he outlines for Lammerslint do exactly end up happening to himself. Anyway, maybe old Helmbrecht's snarkiness is another instance of the satirist stepping in and hijacking the realistic portrayal of a character in order to serve the structure and message of the satire. I'm inclined to take a different angle from Nordmeyer here. If there's a necessity driving old Helmbrecht to treat his son this way, it's not a socio-cultural necessity of ostracizing a convict relation, but rather the poetic necessity of returning all of Helmbrecht's sins back upon him. All right, there is so much we could unpack just in this last bit of the story. Uh, what's with the clod of earth that the peasants give Helmbrecht? Why does Lammerslint step on Godolin's foot when they get married? Uh, just how punishing is it to carry cowhides on your back? Alas, we filled an episode already, but I don't want to let all that juicy material go to waste, so I'm going to put it into an appendix for this episode that will be available to anyone who supports us on Patreon. 
Uh, I'll try to have that out in a couple of days for our patrons. Before I wrap this up, I did want to share a little bit from, uh, as introduced earlier, the Saxon Mirror, Maria de Bosi's uh, 1999 translation of the Wolfenbüttel manuscript of the Saxon Spiegel, which dates from the 14th century. So here's how the arrest of the robber knight's entourage ought to have been conducted according to German legal customs. If lawbreakers are harbored in a castle contrary to law, then when the judge is summoned there by means of the hue and cry, and the inhabitants and the malefactors are summoned down according to law in such a way that it can be heard from the castle, but the inhabitants do not hand them over for judgment, then the castle and all its inhabitants are placed in outlawry, and the castle is tried. If, however, they allow the judge's six deputies and the plaintiff to enter so that they may seek the perpetrators and the robbed goods, then the castle inhabitants shall not be outlawed. If the castle is accused of the robbery, claiming that it occurred and originated from there, then the lord of the castle, or one of the citizens, must clear it with a cleansing oath on the relics. Anyone who is himself accused of the crime cannot clear the castle unless he has already cleared himself. However, if someone wants to prosecute the castle with trial by combat, the lord of the castle or the citizens must defend their innocence against their social equals. Otherwise, they shall be outlawed and tried. If one person makes a complaint against another, claiming that he attacked him with force from the castle, then the lord of the castle shall bring him forward so that he can make restitution or clear the castle of the charges. If he does not do this, he must defend personally against the charges. If a man brings charges against a castle saying that he was robbed by an inhabitant but does not know who the perpetrator was, the lord of the castle must answer for it before the court within six weeks of the day the charges were made in order to exonerate the castle with his oath or pay restitution for damages to satisfy legal custom, but without fine if he is not guilty of aiding or abetting. Whenever people ride from a castle, cause harm, and do not return within three days and nights, and, in addition, the robbed goods are not found either in or near the castle, then the castle is innocent. But if the robber returns to the castle, and the stolen goods appear there, or close by, then the castle is responsible for the crime. This procedure highlights again the oddity of the absence in the poem of the lord of the castle, the actual robber knight heading this robber band. It also lets us know how lucky the officers of the court were that the power of the Schurgenbahn worked and the robbers completely collapsed at their approach, since the power of mere local authorities to get offenders out of a castle, if they don't want to come out, would in most circumstances be quite limited. This is one of the reasons why robber knights became such a phenomenon at this time in Germany. They weren't just common bandits hiding in a forest camp, they were a quasi-military force not so easily quelled by village or town or even city authorities. Indeed, the end of the robber knights may not have been brought about by improvements in the political situation, but by technology. I found a claim about the decline of the German robber knights from Charlton Lewis in his 1870 book, A History of Germany from Earliest Times. Some of you out there might know Lewis from a standard reference work that still bears his name, the Lewis and Short Latin Dictionary. I don't know what the status of this interpretation of German history is in modern scholarship, but Lewis attributes the end of the robber barons to the invention of gunpowder. Quote, The invention of firearms, whether or not it has proved a life-saving agency on the whole, as many modern writers affirm, certainly did a great service to mankind at the end of the Middle Ages. The military caste of knighthood, with all the social evils which were supported by it, was swept away with ease for no body armor could resist the new missiles. The robber knights could no longer make their castles dens of plunder and defy assault. Frederick, the first of the Hohenzollerns, could not have crushed his defiant and turbulent nobles with their castle walls fourteen feet thick, nor could the brave Swiss infantry have destroyed the heavy knights of Charles the Bold and of Francis I without gunpowder. Knighthood had lost its poetry, its grace, and its nobleness and while its empty form continued to murmur against this ignoble means of warfare, the new explosive agent cleared the way for the citizens and the industrious middle classes to their true position and work in the nation's progress. End quote. 
Now, there's a nice example of a 19th century historian just really showcasing their Victorian perspective. All right, here is our riddle for this episode. It comes from the early 16th century De Mons Joyus. It is, What people be they that love not in no wise to be prayed for? This is early modern English, so the double negative should be taken as just an intensifier. These are people who really, really don't want to be prayed for. So, who are these people? Well, the answer given in the text of the Demons Joyus is, They be beggars and poor people, when men say God help them when they ask alms. So, in other words, people like the blind and maimed Helmbrecht. And with that, we leave Meyer Helmbrecht and Werner the Gardener behind. You can get more information about the sources referenced in this episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can also send me email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at MDTPodcast, where you'll usually get the riddle or mystery word in advance of the episode coming out. Uh, That is, when I actually have the schedule worked out clearly enough that I remember to do it. Uh, And if you'd like to hear those appendix episodes I mentioned, or listen to our audiobook of Jordanus' Wonders of the East, you can get those by supporting us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, and join the ranks of people like our latest supporters, Jennifer, Rebecca, Oliver, and Julie. Thank you all for your generous support. So, until next time, remember not to call your parents rude names, because... You might just end up eyeless, footless, and handless. And thanks for listening. All right. I know how things are now. I've suffered. I've suffered. And I've suffered. And everybody wants me to go on suffering. You've made others suffer. It's only right that you should suffer proper. You know, I've been told everything you've done sitting here at night round the family table, and pretty shocking it was to listen to. It made me real sick, a lot of it did. (laughs)